WBUR Podcasts, Boston. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm bracing myself. I know. We have a rather heavy topic today that we're going to discuss on Dear Sugar Radio. <laughs> on Dear Sugar Radio. Yeah, a, a heavy topic on Dear Sugar Radio? I, I know. Right. We're usually so light and cheerful. It's isolation. Mm-hmm. That feeling you have when the people, the intimate people you love, you're surrounded by them and you feel alone right. and misunderstood. You know, it can be because of experience that makes us feel alone or alienated from others. Sometimes it's because we have an identity that's not shared with those uh, closest to us. Mm-hmm. And we're going to answer some letters and have a really terrific guest today help us uh, through these questions. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just get started. Let's hear our first letter. Dear Sugars, I'm a 30-something woman with a previously charmed life. I have friends who have also lived said charmed life. Nothing bad has ever happened to them. They have never suffered or grieved or needed or waited in want. I was like them until about three years ago when I started having miscarriages. The first was bearable, the second a late-term loss where I delivered my child and held her powerless in my arms and said goodbye was life-changing. I fell into a deep and paralyzing depression, but tried to put on a happy face for my charmed friends. I kept trying to have a baby. Over the course of the next two years, I had four more miscarriages and six surgeries to fix my issues. The advice I seek from you is not medical. That's for my doctor to figure out. The question is rather, how do I continue to put on my happy face and try to relate to the charmed ones, when I've gone through a transformation of heart that they cannot relate to, empathize with, or even understand. I am not the same person I was three years ago, and this difference seeps from my pores at every social gathering. I'm like an alien. They don't know me anymore, and I deplore the easy superficial problems and thoughts that take up the caverns of their minds. My caverns are filled with cogs and wheels that have turned me into a new person, a survivor. My friends have yet to be tested. They have yet to survive. For some reason, I cannot relate to those who have no scars. I want companions, compadres, battalion buddies. Is it wrong to wish they too had scars so I can feel close to them again? I want them to need me the way I have needed them. But mostly, I want them to know me again, the new me, the one with all the scars, sincerely a lonely war vet. Oh, Steve, I felt this letter so deep in my own yeah. heart. I really identified with Lonely War Vet. Yeah. N- not because I've had the same journey. Obviously, I, I, my, my losses aren't about miscarriages. But it really brought me back to this era of my life, the decade of my 20s, essentially. Yeah. When I was, you know, this young woman, this 22-year-old woman 
whose mother died young and, and tragically and suddenly. And I wasn't close to anyone else who had lost a parent. Yeah. And I, I, re- I really identify a lonely war vet with your sense of isolation and also your sense of, of rage. You know, that yeah. sense like, why, why did I get scarred and you didn't? Yeah. And so I first want to just extend a little hand to you through the airwaves of the podcast mm-hmm. and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah. And the feeling that you're having of this isolation is part of the grieving process. It's part of what's now true for you. Right. There is a way... This sounds harsh to say, but there is a way that in this experience you are alone. And the friends that you have right now who have not had these losses are not with you. And, you know, the thing that's also true is there are other people out there who have had this loss. And part of your healing journey as you grieve these losses is finding those other people. You know, finding the people who do have those scars, who do understand you. And what's going to happen when you have those people you can show your true self with is you're probably going to be a lot more open and loving and available to those other people who you do treasure. You know, just because they don't have those same scars as you doesn't mean that they never will. Yeah. And it, it really goes back to that essential truth about relationships is that we can't get everything from any one person. Yeah. And in some ways, those friends maybe have been people in the past who have been able to make you feel known. And right now, they, they don't make you feel known anymore. Yeah. That doesn't mean they don't love you. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's right. And I think it's so interesting, Lonely War Vet, that you use that pseudonym because this is, of course, what we see in military culture is that there are so many men and women who returned from what is essentially a morally chaotic, traumatic experience, and then they're locked inside of it because they're saying to themselves, rightfully, how do I possibly explain what I've borne witness to and suffered to people who have not been in those situations? Just the description of losing a child that you have to hold. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of your friends are never going to experience that. Mm -hmm. And when you get feel angry, uh, I think partly in an odd way, what you're seeing in your friends is who you used to be before this happened. The person who walked through life saying, I'm going to have a baby and it's going to be beautiful and it will be life affirming. And and that's what will happen because I'm charmed. Mm-hmm. We all walk around wishing to be charmed. And then in one way or another, um, life dispels us of that. And I do want to say that Saying that your friends have never suffered or grieved or needed or waited in want is certainly emotionally true, but it's not actually true. Mm -hmm. And you have to once, I think Cheryl's wise to say, sometimes you do actually have to talk to people who have shared a particular kind of traumatic experience so that you feel less alone with it. And then you become more forgiving of yourself. And then what happens is you become more forgiving of your friends and more able to see them as complicated people who appear to lead a charmed life, but whose internal lives are probably pretty complicated as well. They are not marked by a particular experience, but they are marked by yearnings, unmet desires, disappointments, and probably they've been keeping those a secret Yeah, because that's what we do. Well, and I think that's absolutely true. I also think, Lonely War Vet, that most of these beloved friends are devastated for you. Yeah. And they want to understand your loss. And they want to be there for you, even if they can't look you in the eyes and say, I know, I know, I know exactly how you feel. 
right? You, you're not going to get that from these friends. And I think, And frankly, you wouldn't believe it you, if you did. And you don't want yeah. that from them. Yeah. You don't want them to have the same loss that you've had. I mean, that, that was one of the most confusing things. You feel isolated in your loss, and then you feel really ashamed that you almost feel jealous of people who haven't had that loss, even though you wouldn't wish that loss upon them. Yeah. And so first, you know, just forgive yourself for that. Right. And know that a lot of these people, they want to be there for you, and they can be there for you. Yeah. I've had friends say to me before, how can I support you in bearing this weight? Mm-hmm. And those friends who look at you, Lonely Vorvat, and say that, they're going to be enormously helpful to you in your healing, whether they've had the same experience as you or not. Yeah. The one thing we can say for sure is, please don't try to put on a happy face. No. Happy uh, faces never work. They never work. And it's totally understandable. But in the face of this kind of uh, tragedy, instead of tragedies, I mean, this is over and over. This is surgeries. Mm-hmm. That's been your last several years here. Nobody expects you to put on a happy face. So you shouldn't expect yourself to. Yeah. And I will say, lastly, that Lonely Warvat, life is long. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel lucky that my mom died when I was 22, and I've had to live my life without her. But I do know that for certain, I learned a lot from that loss. And carrying that loss through my life has, has made me a stronger person. And what's happened now that I'm 48, I'm surrounded by people whose parents have died or are dying. And guess who they come to? Right. You know, I've had so many friends. Steve, you know, your mom just died yep. earlier mm-hmm. this year, who said to me, I thought of you. I thought of all the things that you shared with me mm-hmm. about your grief. And not only that, you thought of them. You reached out to the, me. It was very m- important. And I thought, well, this is where it shows up. And that's the thing that's really you have to recognize as the deeper meaning of this. You are leading a deeper life now. Mm -hmm. It's not one you would have chosen, but we spend a lot of time, especially Mm -hmm. in the plenitude of America, worrying about stuff that isn't at the gut level, at the basic level of living an examined life important. And if one of the things that comes out of this is that you rid yourself of worrying about those niceties, then that's probably good. And your friends, if they're of enough depth and consent to go to that deeper place, will go with you. They will. And you'll and, need the company. And you'll turn this ugly sorrow into something powerful and strong and beautiful when you help those friends through their own griefs and sufferings. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it isn't going to be true, as we know, right? Yeah. Charmed lives only last as long as the days are charming. They are. And right. and we never, any of us know what's going to come next. And mm-hmm. so, you know, obviously, these are lifelong friends. You've known them since childhood. You want to know them into old age. Um, so, you know, wait it out. Don't expect them to be the greatest resource for you now. But know that someday... That might change. You might be the greatest resource for them. Mm -hmm. We wish you luck. We absolutely do. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, 
five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. So, Cheryl, that's a woman who's recalibrating, really, her her mind and her heart around a particular experience of loss. Um, But it's also true that part of what isolates us as we move through our lives is that our identity in one way or another and our inbox, as we both know, is full of letters in which the essential complaint underneath the particular circumstance is, I was born this, I've realized that I'm that, and that realization about who I am and my identity has caused me to lose people or mm-hmm. to feel that I'm going to lose people or have lost them. I feel isolated simply because of my identity. Mm-hmm. So let me read a letter that speaks to that. Oh, yeah. Dear Sugars, I'm a bisexual colored immigrant woman living in the United States who has recently gotten into a relationship with a heterosexual white man. My boyfriend is kind, compassionate, and loving but he doesn't really get it. I often speak about my experiences, and he's a great listener, but he doesn't understand. I fear that this lack of understanding will create a wedge between us. It hurts when I talk about issues such as privilege and the fact that he has a lot of it, and he disagrees with me. How do I help him understand what he has never and will never experience? Signed, Social Justice Warrior in Love. Wow. That's a deep one. Yeah. This isn't, this, like you said, this isn't about experience. This is about who she is. And she is in the Venn diagram of people who are marginalized. She's got three strikes. Bisexual, woman of color, immigrant. Yeah. We don't even have to go any further than one of those to recognize that that would be a real obstacle when you get involved with heterosexual white man, dominant, normative in every moment. And right. so much so said the white heterosexual guy, that we are essentially blind to it. Uh-huh. That's it, right. Yeah. He's never had... I mean, that's the thing about privilege. You, you don't know the you luxury have of, You have the luxury of not having to investigate it. In, in the largest sense, I have led a charmed life. Yeah. Because of my orientation, my skin color, my gender. There's just a whole set of things that I just don't ever even think about. And I have to have people remind me of that. Uh, and... This is much more pronounced because social justice warrior, this is your boyfriend. And you are just leading a completely different existence that he has no clue about. And it's really tough, but you have to, if you think it's worth it, help him try to get it. It's a little bit like that line at the end of um, 
A Good Man is Hard to Find, where the grandmother, you know, the misfit says that the grandmother would have been all right if there'd been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Right. I feel, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but I feel a little bit like, hey, if you're going to get with this guy who's a white heterosexual man, nice guy, understanding, compassionate, a good listener, you're going to have to shoot him every minute of your life with what your experience is moving mm-hmm. through the world as a bisexual colored immigrant woman if he wants to be with you and, yeah. you know, have some empathy for what your life is like. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, the, the advice I just gave Lonely War Vet about experience was, you know, go out and, and, and find other people who have that experience so that you do so that you're not alone. But, you know, I think that this is a, a different kind of isolation mm-hmm. because the question at the core of this is, can this relationship survive, this right. this romantic relationship? Um, you're in love with each other, and yet you feel deeply at odds with your partner. And it is, it, it's one of those deal killer things. If you ultimately are going to feel misunderstood repeatedly in the deepest parts of yourself, unknowable to your partner, that's a relationship that's unsustainable. The good news is that people are capable of change. Right. People, if they are asked to do some work, sometimes they surprise us. Right. And so, you know, I think that we should call, we have somebody, social justice warrior in love, mm-hmm. uh, who can speak directly to the situation you're in, mm-hmm. because she is in it herself. Her name is Talin Kell. She's a writer, blogger, and artist. She's written many pieces for the multimedia site The Establishment, which is a site run and funded by women, I want to know. Yes. Including two fabulous pieces. The first is called My Husband's Unconscious Racism Nearly Destroyed Our Marriage. Yep. And the other is Why I Cut My Racist In-Laws Out of My Life. I read both of these pieces and was just really electrified by what Talin had to say about her situation, her family, and her marriage. And I think Social Justice Warrior, she's going to speak straight to your point. She sure will. Let's give her a call, and we'll we'll remind listeners that we will put links to both of those beautiful pieces on the Dear Sugar website as well. Let's give her a call. Hello? Hi, is this Talon? Yes, it is. Hi, this is Cheryl Strait. I have Steve Almond on as well. Hi, Talon. Welcome to Dear Sugar Radio. Thank you for having me. We're so thrilled to talk to you. So listen, we have been discussing this letter from Social Justice Warrior in Love. Did you have a chance to read the letter? Yes, I did. So before we ask you to weigh in with your advice, I wondered if you could share your story with us. Uh, how how have you um, encountered this kind of situation that Social Justice Warrior in Love discusses? Oh, man. So it's... <laughs> No, really, it's such a loaded situation because it's only been recently that I've really looked at my life from this perspective as a member of several oppressed groups. And I'm with someone who is actually in a very privileged group and trying to understand the dynamics of that and how that kind of impacts us as a couple. One conversation, I remember him saying something along the lines of, you know, he thought reverse racism was real. Mm-hmm. And I would look at him like, are you serious right now? So it sounds to me like what was happening is he he had no awareness of his own privilege. None at all. He didn't believe he had any. Um, he comes from a working class family, and he's like the only person in his immediate family who has an advanced degree. And all of his extended family, they were all blue collar. Mm-hmm. So you could see like the as far as the money, the financial situation mm-hmm. went, 
they were on the, you know, the lower end of the socioeconomic status. And it gets more complicated when you talk to somebody who's white and they don't have money yeah. mm-hmm. because they honestly think they have no privilege. They're like, I have to struggle. I had to work. And I'm like, no one's saying you don't have to work. What we're saying is that when you walk into a room, you have the opportunity to whoever you are. Right. When I walk into a room, people are looking at me like, so what kind of ghetto stuff is she going to do right now? So at what point in your relationship did this become an issue large enough for you that you needed to confront your partner about it? You know, it was really early on. All of his friends are white and they liked hanging out in areas of town that were predominantly white. I'm, I'm not sure if you know, I'm in Atlanta and mm-hmm. There are certain counties that we know that are still considered to be sundown towns in a lot of ways where you just there are not a lot of black people there and you can expect to face some kind of hostility or overt kind of racism the the more you're there. Like we went to Helen, Georgia, which is, you know, some mountain town and it's a tourist attraction. And when we we went in there, there were figurines of like mammies. And and I would go in and see it and be like, what in the hell? And he, his reaction was, why are you getting upset? And I'm like, are you serious? Yeah. Right. And then we'd have to have a conversation. (laughs) I told him in the beginning, you cannot avoid talking about race because you are now with the black woman. Mm -hmm. This is not something you can ignore anymore. It is not something that's no longer a part of your life. And if you don't want it to be a part of your life, we should just break up because it will always be part of our relationship. Wow. How did you new reality? How did he react to that? He kind of went into a little bit of denial, but a bigger part of him was like, I want to be with you. So what do I have to do? Mm-hmm. And what did you tell him and to we, do? Well, we spent honestly years <laughs> mm-hmm. talking and learning how to communicate about it. Like it just came to a point where I was like, you can't challenge me about this because you don't know. You can go do a bunch of research. Here are some books. Here are some articles you can go read. Mm -hmm. And you can start learning about this. But you can't sit here and try and tell me that my reality isn't real. That is ridiculous. And if that's really how you feel, we don't need to be the guy. I I was very quick to be like, we should just break up. Wow. (laughs) And Talon, you know, it really, it sounds to me like that's perfect advice to SJW Love, you know, because she's saying... Exactly what you're describing. You know, I love this guy, but I feel like he doesn't get it. And then when I pointed out to him, he doesn't, he still doesn't get it. And it, you know, it does seem to me, SJW and love that you're, you're at this like moment of truth in your relationship right. that, that he, your partner either needs to say, like Talon's partner did, not always perfectly, but okay, you know, I, I'm going to try to begin this journey of learning. Uh, about, you know, some my privilege. And, you know, I, it sounds like that was, you know, he decided to do that and it worked out for you. But SJW and love, you know, you can't go forward with somebody who doesn't, who's not willing to do that. Right. And, and in fact, the, the letter says, I fear this lack of understanding will create a wedge between us. SJW, it is, the wedge is there. Yeah. And, and, yep. and Talon, you can speak to this, I think. It's not just one conversation or one research binge. It's an ongoing process because it sounds like even if you came to terms with your boyfriend, now husband, Talon, there was also his family and a whole, yeah. you know, a whole new set of occasions in which you guys had to either honestly confront the reality of race in your relationship and in the society around you or, you know, at least in, in your book, say, no, we can't, we can't do this. 
and I'm very, very, very big on honesty. I'm very big on transparency. And so I spent a lot of time saying, hey, you are going to have questions, you're going to have concerns, and you're going to worry about how it sounds. I am willing to give you the space to talk about that so that we can try and figure some of this out and I can help you understand what's actually happening here. That was hard. And there were a number of times where he would say something and I was like, that is the most ignorant. I'm going to walk away. (laughs) (laughs) Give us an example. Can you remember something? We actually had a conversation recently about one of the recent shootings. There are so many, I don't even remember which one it was or how many there have been. And he asked me, he was like, why couldn't he just comply? And I was just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Even if you don't comply, it doesn't mean that you deserve to die in the street. And when he started to ask the question, I thought, you need to be very, very careful about what you're about to ask me, because it sounds like you were about to start blaming the victim. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're going to try and make it sound like somehow or other, it is the, this man's fault for being murdered mm-hmm. by a cop. And I know where he was coming from. What he was coming from is I'm having a lot of issues. I'm feeling very hopeless about things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he worries that I'm not going to try to survive a police encounter. I'm just going to lose it and be like, wow. it doesn't matter what I do that, you know, I can just act. However, if they're going to shoot me, they're going to shoot me. And he worried, he was worried about that. Yeah. So it was him trying to be protective. But at the same time, I was like, you got to be careful about that because the problem is not the victim mm-hmm. and keep that firmly in how you talk about this. One thing I'm so fascinated by is you telling us this story about your intimate relationship. And I'm really feeling this. It mirrors, I think, what we need to do as a culture, right? I mean, there's so many uh, things going on as, you know, in the cultural conversation, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of that stuff that really, you know, your relationship is this kind of microcosm Mm -hmm. of what's happening culturally. And I'm curious about if you can give us some tips for SJW and love, like, how, you know, how did you get through the gnarly moments? How did you get through the times that you felt like, you know, screw this. I, yeah. I, it's not worth it. I want to walk away and be with somebody who does get me more naturally or more easily. He was willing to listen even when it was hard. And even when we had to take a break and go to our separate corners, <laughs> we were both willing to come back and try again and talk again and revisit these things. And so that was a key point. I couldn't have done this with somebody who wasn't open to being wrong and open to shifting their perspective. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to hear that you are not the special snowflake you always thought you were. <laughs> well, and also you know, nobody and nobody likes to hear you're wrong, which which I have to say, yes. no wonder you're still with your partner. That that I mean, credit to him to learn from that. Because a lot of people, the minute they hear they're wrong, they go, okay, I can't do this, bye. Mm-hmm. Especially us white dudes, because we don't hear it a lot. Yeah, he is a special snowflake. (laughs) Yeah, it turns out. (laughs) But that snowflake had to be sort of crushed a bit bit first. It made him more special. So now, like, where are you now? Obviously, everything, the conversation never ends, right? No, but now it's more, if I challenge him about it, he's just like, oh, let me think about that. Okay, okay, let me rephrase that. And, like, we'll work through it, and it's not as volatile as it was before. And it wasn't a knee jerk, no response as it was before. And I mean, when I say he is wonderful, he really is. He's just like, be who you are, feel how you feel. He's been very supportive of everything I do. I mean, you could imagine when I wrote this essay, 
he was a little apprehensive and I let him read it. And he said, okay, yeah, there's no way I'm going to come out of this looking good. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, so but he does actually, but he does, he does. And I think it's in that piece that you say, all white people are racist. <laughs> They and, live in there. What do you call it? The white in, bubble of bullshit, or bu- bu- <laughs> bullsh- bubble of white bullshit? Is that? What it is? It's a. It's a. It's yeah. a. I was like, I wonder what that musk was. Ah, that's no, my bullshit. Was, yeah. When I was reading it, Talon, I was like, both both the one about your marriage and your and your in laws. I I was really struck. I I love the way that you um just say, you know, I'm just we're going to be honest, and racism is a fact right. of our lives, you know, and we're not going to pretend it isn't. And and I think that that's really refreshing. And I think that that idea that your husband feels like he came off bad in that is is really about a kind of notion of white fragility that we need to lose. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make you a bad person just because you have some things to learn about your own privilege. Exactly. It is something that you can learn to recognize and to call yourself on. And the only way you are going to call yourself out on it is if you actually are honest about what it is. You see it, you say it, you put words to it, you articulate what it is that is happening with you. And then when you notice it happening, you stop yourself and it becomes easier over time. So this episode that our conversation is going to run on, our theme is feeling isolated in friendships and romantic relationships, feeling feeling like you're different or alone. And I'm curious, you and your husband, you know, he's never going to not be white. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to not be African-American. And there's just that there is that difference between you. But do you feel that you get him and he gets you? Um, no. There are certain things about my experience he's just never, ever going to get. But when I tell him I'm experiencing it, he believes me. Hmm. Yeah. And that was the important part. He believes me. He doesn't tell me that I'm exaggerating. He doesn't tell me that I'm making it up. He doesn't tell me I'm overreacting. You know, his question is always, how can I help you with this? What can I do? Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and it's something for SJW to, to think about. Maybe they'll yes. listen to this episode together of Dear Sugar Radio, and we will have saved their relationship. Let's, go, let's take that a step forward. <laughs> they damn well better listen to it together. They better. <laughs> right, Talon? If, if they don't tune in together, I think she should just, you know, chuck them to the sidewalk. He really does have to be open to it. He really, truly does. Yeah. Talon, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really wonderful to talk to you. And those pieces that you wrote on the establishment, we'll link to them on our web page and i encourage all of our listeners to go read them they were really interesting yeah they're fantastic thank you very much for having me i appreciate it bye-bye well so interesting you know one of the things i just we don't always get to tell happy stories yeah on dear sugar radio and i love that talon can really tell us a happy story and it's and it's one that's not a the fairy tale, right? They, they've all. had struggles. They have to have difficult conversations. And I love what she said when I asked her if she felt that her husband gets her. That's what SJW in love is not feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's what Lonely War Vet is not feeling. Right. You know, but in both cases, they're saying they don't get me or they don't get my experience, what the, the, the scars I have now. Mm-hmm. And I love that Talent said, okay, we're probably never going to get each other, but he believes me. And that's really the best we can ask for. Nobody really can be us, but we can f- find and in some cases demand mm-hmm. that people really know who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, you can hear in Talon's 
discussion, both in her pieces and just in our short conversation, that's somebody who's insistent about it. She's a good model of how hard and continual that work has to be to keep those lines of communication open, not so that the angels sing and everybody knows that everybody, who everybody else is deep in their soul, but simply so that you can accept that even though there are things that make it impossible to completely understand somebody else's selfhood, you can accept yourself and you can make an effort to draw closer. Mm Mm-hmm. When you are lost or feeling down, I'm gonna wrap my arms around you. I'm gonna wrap my arms around you. I'm gonna wrap my arms around you. Right around you. I'm gonna wrap my arms right around you, babe. When you are lost or feeling down. All right, well. This has been another episode of Dear Sugar Radio. We're produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Amory Sievertson. We're recording at Talk Back Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon. Josh Millman is our engineer. Our theme music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Vocals are by Liz Weiss. Mm-hmm. Subscribe to Dear Sugar on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Dear Sugar Radio. Please also write us your letters. We want to know all your secrets and sorrows and struggles and conundrums. Dear Sugar Radio at gmail.com. That's it. Right around you, babe. When you were lost, feeling down, I'm gonna wrap my arms around you. I'm gonna wrap my arms around you. I'm gonna wrap my arms around you. Right around you. I'm gonna wrap my arms right around you.